And if you would open your copy of the Scriptures to Philippians chapter 3. Our text this morning is Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. For those who might be visiting, we make it our practice to typically work our way through books of the Bible, and so we have been for a few months now in the book of Philippians. This is God's Word, beginning with verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating Me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Father, as we have read Your Word, and now as I have the privilege to uh, proclaim it, I ask that You would uh, continually fill me with Your Spirit, um, Your people with Your Spirit. Give everyone, I pray, um, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe Your Word, I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. What will tomorrow bring? Will it bring earth-rattling changes? Will it present a crossroad in your life that will significantly alter your future direction? Or will tomorrow be like today which is probably a lot like yesterday. In other words, I am asking, what can we really know about the future? One person may have a more optimistic view of the future. Another person might have a more pessimistic view of the future. But all that is certain about our future is that none of us know what it will bring. The Apostle Paul knew that the Philippians were facing difficult times in their church. And their future, of course, was as uncertain as ours is. Now, I'm speaking from a human standpoint. God knows all things. God has set all things in place. He is sovereign. But from our standpoint, who of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Who of us knows if we will wake up tomorrow? So, Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he wanted to encourage them to stand firm. I want you to peek ahead one verse to um, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so he's telling them, stand firm. And uh, he is telling them in our passage this morning 
how to do that. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, Paul is telling the Philippians, and through them is also telling us how to stand firm in the Lord. So, we can stand firm in the face of present difficulties and future uncertainties, even though we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We know that we can stand firm. And God here in our passage tells us how to do it. You know, we can look at world events and we see unsettled nations. We look at the world's financial markets and we see that all the markets are unsettled. We can look at our own nation's headlines. We see a very tight election. Uh, We see also uh, increased warnings about terrorism. We can also look at our own checkbooks or um, we can we know about our own medical conditions. And these kinds of things can bring us great amounts of anxiety because although we see trends, we don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. And then, as we look into our own hearts, our own hearts in relationship to the holiness of God, there's plenty to unsettle us. I get questions all the time. How will I know that I will remain faithful to God? Because I know that there's so much in my heart that is displeasing to God. And so, as we look in our own hearts, that can be unsettling. But the good news is that we can, regardless of our present difficulties, regardless of our future uncertainties, we can stand firm in the Lord. You may feel emotionally uh, like your present circumstances are quicksand and that your future is despair. You may feel spiritually like your present is half-hearted and your future spiritual life is lukewarm. You may feel physically like your present is aching all over and that your future is unbearable. You may feel financially like your present is stretched and your future is a sinkhole. But my brothers and sisters, to paraphrase Paul in Philippians 4 verse 1, my brothers and my sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, regardless of your present difficulties, regardless of your future uncertainties, you can stand firm in the Lord. God will give you His help. The Christians in the city of Philippi were no different than us. They had present difficulties. In fact, as we began our study in Philippians, we looked at a number of of the different uh, difficulties that they had. They were being persecuted for their faith. 
Um, but they had an additional challenge that was confronting them. Uh, an additional challenge that uh, we often don't have. And that is that there were false teachers within the congregation in Philippi. Paul mentioned them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about um, people here who are false teachers. And then also in the church in Rome that Paul was pastoring, even though he was in prison in Rome, there were these people um, who were false teachers uh, or and they were trying to undermine his authority. Remember chapter 1, verse 15? He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 17, The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And they were teaching some truth here, but it still was not pure, because they were intending Paul harm rather than good. So there were these false preachers that um, had really uh, spread throughout all the churches during the first century. Just about every letter that Paul uh, wrote was addressing these uh, these false teachers. You know, we'd like to think that the church is the one place where our faith is protected and is safe from ungodly influences that the history, the whole flow of the, the whole flow of church history says otherwise. In fact, it's not the threat from the out from outside the church that uh, caused the most damage. Generally, the the church responds quite faithfully to persecution. Um, the church typically responds quite faithfully in the face of competing religions. Where the church struggles most are those attacks from within that act like an unseen cancer within the body. What happens is there are always people who think that they can that they know best what a church needs. They fancy themselves the savior of the church. And they have this knowledge or these gifts that the church desperately needs. And they might even wonder how the church was able to survive prior to their arrival. And Paul warned the Philippians of these very kinds of false teachers in verses 18 and 19. Look at the text. Paul says, "...for many..." of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The dangerous things about these teachers is that they teach a lot of truth and they have this infectious personality. They're able to... to, uh, to to gain a hearing, but they also teach a little error in regard to the core of the gospel. Typically, uh, these people have 
found, quote-unquote, a new truth or a novel technique that the church has yet to learn. And these new truths, these novel techniques end up being shortcuts around the Gospel. That's why Paul says here uh, in, in uh, verse 18 that they uh, walk as enemies of the Gospel. And then because they bypass the Gospel, they themselves are unaffected by the Gospel. Their mindset remains just like that of unbelievers. On the outside, they look impressive. But their God, verse 19, is their belly and their glory is their shame. As a preacher, I know what Paul meant when he said that their God was their belly and that they glory in their shame. He didn't mean that these false teachers liked to eat a lot or um, they were particularly fat or anything like that. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is they liked being the center of attention. I have the privilege every week of standing before you and have you listened to me for at least a half hour, oftentimes I know a little longer than a half hour. Um, And it feels good to be affirmed or reaffirmed at the back door after a sermon. You've heard me say many times that I don't like public speaking. And I have not tried to outgrow my dislike of public speaking because I have this fear inside me that if I outgrow my, my, uh, my fear, my dislike of public speaking, that I may grow to love public speaking. And then I would be just like these people in verses 18 and 19 that Paul warns you about. You've also heard me say many times that uh, when I'm in the pulpit, it's just me and God. Now, during the week, I have you in mind. During the week, I am always asking, how can I bring God's Word to His people? What are the questions that God's people are asking of this passage? But come 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, even though I'm speaking to you, even though I regard you, in a very real way, it's just me and God. You are just here as I am participating in worship. I know my redeemed heart is still deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And if I allow my preaching to become about me, then by definition, it's not about Christ. This is what had happened to these false teachers. It was all about them. That's why Paul said that their, that their God is their belly. Paul knew that there were these false preachers that were loose in the congregation in Philippi. And so what he's doing here in our passage in verses um, uh, 20 and 21 Also, verse 17, he's telling them how to stand firm in the face of these subtle yet deadly attacks. So the first thing Paul tells them 
to do in terms of, of how to stand firm is to is to um, imitate himself. Now, wait a minute. That's a curious statement. Paul is telling us how to to remain firm in the Lord by imitating Him. Wouldn't you think that Paul would say, imitate Christ? And it's, it's even more strange because remember verses 12 and 13 in chapter 3? Paul says, I have not already obtained this. I am not perfect. Uh, uh, verse 13, I do not consider uh, myself or to have made made it my own. I am far from what God wants me to be. Remember how we talked about Paul's frustration at the sin that still lives inside him. How he longed to be what his heart desires to be. His redeemed heart. Just like our redeemed heart longs to be obedient to God in everything. But we fall so far short, even at our best. And so that's a curious thing that Paul is saying. Imitate me. Well, why is Paul saying this? Well, the clue is found in the second half of verse 17. He says uh, in verse 17, Join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Well, who's the us? The us is Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And so he... Remember in chapter 2 how Paul put himself forward as an example and then he put Timothy as an, forward as an example and then he put Epaphroditus as an example? Paul said, um, essentially in each of those instances, that in order for you to effectively minister to other people, you have to die to yourself. So listen to how Paul speaks in chapter 2, verse 17, as he speaks of himself. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And so he says, That's basically my life. I'm pouring it out as a sacrifice for you. And then he pointed to Timothy. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, here's what he said about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not the interest of Jesus Christ. But Timothy seeks not his welfare certainly not His glory. He seeks the Philippians' welfare. And then Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You contrast Paul's example, Timothy's example, Epaphroditus' example, with the, with the life of these false teachers. And the contrast is striking. 
Paul is telling us that if we want to stand firm in our present difficulties, in our uncertain futures, we must walk as Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus did. In other words, we must put everyone else ahead of ourselves. Now, how does that help you stand firm? Well, first of all, if you have put everyone else and their concerns ahead of your own, you won't be so concerned about your own circumstances. But if you are thinking only about your own circumstances, well, your circumstances seem big. They, they fill your whole perspective. But if you are serving other people, very easy then to take your eyes off of yourself for a few moments. Secondly, God is sovereign. He is going to be, or He is able to take care of you. He promises to take care of you. But if you are putting yourself first, if you are making sure, if you're putting yourself in the place of God and making sure that you're taking care of your needs, uh, and that your needs are being met, then you are taking a shortcut that bypasses the Gospel. And that's exactly what these false teachers were doing. I know it doesn't make sense to our finite, our self-centered hearts to put everyone else first and to put ourselves last. But this is God's way. And this is best. Second, Paul says, if you're going to stand firm, remember your present citizenship. Paul does not say in, um, in verse 20 that we will have a citizenship in heaven. Rather, he says that our citizenship is in heaven presently, currently. Your citizenship is in heaven now. Jesus is our Lord now. Jesus rules us now. We belong to Jesus now. Our eternal life with God has already begun. It is a present possession. We have eternal life now. But your present difficulties and your uncertain future really lie outside of your control. You can try and be uh, responsible and take care of what God has called you to do. You know, if you're a parent, then parent. Um, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. You, you can do those things by God's strength. But even your best efforts, you cannot bring all your circumstances under your control. You're still going to have difficulties. You're still going to have uncertainties. But that's okay. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your feet are planted in heaven. The whole world can be spinning around you. But you can stand firm because your citizenship is in heaven. You have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. To paraphrase uh, the book of Hebrews, you can stand firm in this life because your feet are firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. And it's His grip on you 
that causes you to stand firm. Can you see how being self-aware of your heavenly citizenship can change your whole mindset? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, don't get too engrossed in the things of this world because this world in its present form is passing away. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is Christ your treasure? If He is, then heaven will be your goal and your heavenly citizenship will greatly affect your mindset. Thirdly, Paul said, if you're going to stand firm, you need to patiently wait for your Savior. Look at, um, again, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, for us to stand firm, we have to patiently wait for our Savior. Have you met people that are so heavenly minded that they're not really... um, uh, any earthly good. You know, people who have this mindset are about as healthy spiritually as someone who is earthly minded. They, they, they desire to escape this world for their own benefit. Their, and in their hearts, God is... Um, their, um, Their God is their belly. In other words, they are self-seeking. Although we have our citizenship in heaven, we have to live here on this earth. And we have to live patiently awaiting our Savior. Uh, We patiently wait for God to take care of us day by day. Furthermore, We can't get so caught up in heaven that we forget about serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we're so caught up in heaven and not serving others, well then we're not standing firm. Now, as we consider this whole subject of awaiting a Savior, I hear all the time that uh, Jesus is obviously coming back in our lifetime. Well, I hope so. I pray for Jesus to come back during my lifetime. But I doubt it. I think Christ is going to continue growing His kingdom. That His kingdom is going to spread by the proclamation of the Gospel. That the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But what do I know? Jesus could come back today and I'd be happy. Regardless of whether He comes back during my lifetime, regardless of whether He comes back 500 years from now or more, what are we to do? We are to patiently serve Him, patiently serve His people, patiently bring others maybe sometimes not so patiently, bring others to the Lord Jesus Christ, endure hardship by God's grace, and rejoice in His providence. That's our calling in life. Fourthly and lastly, know that your glorification is certain. Look at verse 21. 
He says we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. I'm going to say a lot more about this in a couple of weeks. But what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is making you a promise in verse 21. If you belong to Jesus, He is going to give you a new, a glorified body that you will get to enjoy for all eternity. Now, what will this glorified body look like? I don't know, to be completely honest. If I get to have any input, my glorified body will be without my belly um, and without as much gray hair as I, I have right now. But what will it look like? I don't know. I know that I will no longer need glasses. I know that the bursitis in my shoulder will no longer be there. That my knees will no longer ache when it rains. Verse 21 says that our glorified bodies will be like Jesus' glorified body. Now that helps us in some ways understand what our bodies will be, our glorified bodies will be like. But at the very same time, it also raises a whole lot more questions. All I can tell you for sure is that when you get your glorified body, you won't be disappointed. I read something from Murray Harris, and I'm getting ready to conclude. Um, in his book, Raised Immortal, he described our glorified bodies as he was doing a theological study of them. He says, Man will be forever delivered from physical weakness. Gone forever will be the dependence of childhood, the distressing infirmity associated with illness or old age, and the frustration of physical limitation felt even by the healthy. Paul is saying then that in the place of an earthly body that is always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a healthy body that is incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection uh, transformation, man will never I'm sorry, man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit, a body that is invariably responsive to his transformed personality. So what does all this mean for us? It means that you have encouragement heaped up on top of encouragement to entrust yourself to God as you live in the midst of this world with its present difficulties, whatever they may be, with with your future uncertainties, whatever God may bring, it also means that we should live for things that last. Live for the long term. We have eternity. Don't cut corners that will cause you to miss the cross and bypass the Gospel. Finally, cast your gaze heavenward. 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, rather than lowering your gaze, lowering your lowering your eyes to try and fulfill earthly and self-centered desires. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when You will transform our lowly bodies to be like Your glorified body. We don't know what it means, but we long for it. And we long here in this life to live transformed lives, to live lives entrusted completely to You, lives that are obedient to You, lives that are full of joy, lives that have that confident hope um, and faith, lives that, that know that You love us in spite of our sin. Father, I pray that You would encourage us as we live here in the face of the present difficulties that we that we face, whether they be emotional, physical, spiritual, or financial. And Lord, help us to entrust our tomorrows to You, knowing that You have worked all things together for our good even before the day begins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.